Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You've been hearing about the violence in Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, and southern Israel. Here's quoting the Deseret News. What started as a week of tense clashes in Jerusalem has escalated into violent unrest on the streets of Arab Israeli towns as well as deadly aerial conflict. More than a thousand rockets lit up the skies of Israeli cities. Well, at least two high-rise buildings were leveled at, in the Israeli bombardment of the blockaded and impoverished Gaza Strip, home to two million Palestinians. Amos Giora is a law professor at University of Utah, and he is right now at his home just outside of Jerusalem. He's joining us for the hour to give us a live report from the uh, area. Uh, professor Giora, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We uh, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to to be with us. Uh, so so tell it you split time I guess between Utah and Israel. Do you? I indeed I do. I have the honor of teaching at the S.J. Clinton College of Law at the uh, University of Utah, and I think you could say that I live a commuting existence between Salt Lake and Jerusalem. And, and I'm here now for you know here I am through August. I mean here being Israel. Yeah. Uh, so when did you arrive uh, this time in, in Israel? How long have you been there this time? Uh, two weeks ago. A little bit less than two weeks. Perfect timing. Yeah, yeah, per- yeah, yeah. unfortunately, perfect timing. Um, so, again, where are you? I understand you're just outside of Israel, or of uh, Jerusalem. We, no, outside Jerusalem. We live um, 10 kilometers west of Jerusalem. For any of your listeners who've been uh, to Israel, we are the first bedroom community on the Jerusalem-Tel Aviv Highway. Okay. Uh, now, understand, uh, reading the Desert News there, you were on a Zoom call when the when the you know rockets <laughs> came came in. Uh, tell me about I, that. I was. I was. I I chair a university committee, and we were had just begun, and uh, when. I heard the uh, Iron Dome, which is the early warning system when, you know, incoming rockets. And I said to the committee members, I said, whoop, air raid siren just went off, hang on. And I, uh, uh, you know, I heard the boom, because the boom, the rockets landed by car, oh, five to seven minutes from our house. And um, the siren kept going, and I went back to the Zoom call, and, we continued our committee meeting because I'm a firm believer, uh, and I think it's important that in the face of terrorism, that you have to be able to adopt the philosophy, which is mine, that life continues. And even though the siren was going off, we continued with our uh, committee me- meeting. Um, you know. Once you make sure that your family's fine and nobody's been hit by the rockets or nobody that you know, I think it's really important to, as much as you can, uh, to continue with life unabated with the understanding that at the moment that obviously is complicated. Yeah, definitely complicated. Uh, so tell me, before we get into this, uh, tell me... You know what life is generally like at your home, just outside Jerusalem, uh, under "quote unquote" normal circumstances. Uh, there's, I imagine, there's still underlying tensions ongoing just about all the time. I, yeah, I, I tell you what the the rockets. 
we we went through this in 2014, you know, with Hamas firing rockets from the Gaza Strip into Israel, including um, towards Jerusalem. So this is a, there's been a seven-year stretch of, of silence, maybe, you know, a seven-year itch. Um, what is different this time, and frankly, what is the source of, of, of real distress and deep concern are the riots in what are called mixed towns, mixed being um, comprised of Jews and Arabs alike, and the riots, today's Thursday, so the riots on Tuesday night and Wednesday night between Jews and Arabs have been absolutely horrible to watch. Um, and riots being riots and, and beatings being beatings, the term that we use here is lynching. I mean, not that lynching in terms of rope, but lynching as in terms of the mob um, seriously beating the Arabs, beating on Jews, and Jews beating on Arabs. Um, and that is something that I think I speak for many of us when I say has totally taken us by surprise. And with the rockets, you can work around it because of the uh, the Iron Dome and the early warning system. Obviously, if you live in southern Israel, which is the most hit area, Tel Aviv got hit very significantly two nights ago. But the rockets, you can work around. The the, um, significant violence, mob violence, in the street between Jews and Arabs, that um, is something that is, I think, long-term, far more distressing than the rockets from Hamas. So this is, there's something new then in, in the element of uh, uh, this violence, uh, these clashes? Yeah, I, I think it is new. Um, I, I, I would assume that, that those who study carefully the Arab-Israeli communities, I think Arab-Israelis or Israeli Arabs comprise 17 or 18 percent of our population, would say that there's been simmering tension over, over the years, but for whatever reason, it has literally exploded in the last 48 hours. Uh, watching it on TV has been distressing as the polite word, uh, deeply upsetting. Um, as a matter of fact, as we speak, and you and I are having this conversation, my family went to a, a, a rally, an Israeli, I mean, Jews and Arabs alike demonstrating um, are calling it for coexistence and peace, and there's going to have to be a need to address this um, compellingly, thoughtfully, and intelligently. One of the difficulties, frankly, um, and I'm very open about this, that I am a vociferous opponent of Prime Minister Netanyahu, who I point a very clear accusatory finger at him for this entire situation. He has no interest whatsoever in, in calming the waters, it's, it's, it's not part of his DNA. It doesn't serve his political purposes. And that is also a significant problem, because I remind you that um, we've had four elections in the past two years. We don't have a government. We have a, a transition government, a provisional government, because neither Netanyahu or his political opponents can form a government. So we are, while all this is going on with Hamas and the violence on the streets, we also have... Um, political stagnation, and as we both know, um, when there's stagnation, there's no vacuum in politics, 
and it really has become uh, extremism begets extremism. And I am in that camp that, that points again, this, you know, which accused his finger at Netanyahu unhesitatingly, in which I blame him for much of this. I'm quoting from uh, CNN here. Uh, they're saying, the reporter saying, an already tense situation uh, uh, prompted by moves to evict Palestinian families from their homes near the old city in Jerusalem exploded one of the holiest sites in in the city. Is, as far as you can tell, is that a, a flashpoint, this the attempted eviction? Uh, I think, yeah, I think that that, so that's, by now that's old news, because that that's what led to the, one of the um, issues that led to the violence in Jerusalem last week. There indeed were riots in East Jerusalem. Um, those riots, not instantly, but the GAN references the, the removal of Palestinians from home. Very complicated issue that's come before the Israeli Supreme Court. Most legal experts would argue with, that that the ownership of, this, of these houses, I think there are four or five homes there, um, are probably Jewish owned. But 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 the decision to um, implement the decision was, uh, you know, served short-sighted political interests. Fortunately. There was a decision made to put that decision in abeyance, but I think I think that's right. I think that decision um, played a role in fomenting the violence last week. I think the other um, reason that there was significant violence last week, only in Jerusalem, was because the Palestinian Authority canceled their election. The reason that they canceled their elections because I think they were very concerned, or are very concerned, that if there were to be elections that Hamas would do very well. And so the Palestinian Authority canceled the election, which I think gave Hamas reason for upping up, you know, upping the pressure. I think the third reason there were there was violence last week is because it was the end of Ramadan, and there were obviously lots of Muslims who came to the old city to pray. Um, he asked me, uh, the Israeli police, I think, overstepped, particularly when they threw a, a stun grenade into a mosque. Um, I don't know if you know, but I served for 20 years in the Israel Defense Forces, including three as the legal advisor to the, to the IDF and the Gaza Strip. I never would have authorized the throwing of a, even of a stun grenade into a mosque under any condition. Um, and you take A, B, C, D together, and that's what led to the, to the, to the, um, to the violence in East Jerusalem last week. But that violence in East Jerusalem never seeped over into West Jerusalem, which is where Jews live. I think Hamas probably used that to begin the, the rocket fire on Monday. Um, since that, by the way, there have been silence in the streets of Jerusalem. Um, I don't know how much they would tie A to B to C together, but those houses are related to the violence last week, absolutely unrelated to what's happening in the last 72 hours. Mm-hmm. Just to remind people, you mentioned the Palestinian Authority, uh, so they're in government in uh, what West Bank, right? Separate. Uh, Hamas, exactly. Hamas controls only in the West Gaza. Bank. And that's, yeah. That's, and Hamas, that's exactly right. Um, the Palestinian Authority has as much influence on Gaza and Hamas as you do. Uh, maybe actually you maybe have even more than they do. They have zero, zero influence. And I think they really are concerned about the strengthening of Hamas's popularity in the West Bank. I remind 
you and the viewers that the listeners that the, the Palestinian Authority has one time had elections in the last uh, was it uh, since 1994, um, and the the current president of the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mohammed uh, Abbas Abumazen, is I think now something like it is fifteenth uh, year of a four year term. I mean, I'm being not I think there's a real concern about Hamas, but I also need to add in the context of Hamas Gaza. Uh, I fall into that camp that says that, as, as maybe as, as awkward as it sounds, but that there is a symbiotic, perhaps bizarre symbiotic relationship between Prime Minister Netanyahu and Hamas. They, in a, in a again, bizarre way, serve each other's purposes. Uh, Hamas needs Netanyahu because every time that he, you know, engages in, in, in profit extremist rhetoric, it fuels their fire. And every time that Hamas fires rockets in Israel, it gives Netanyahu the opportunity to engage in his rhetoric. Uh, and the question of any ways that, that the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, and the government needs to decide in the next day or so is whether to... Um, respond to the rockets only by air attacks, which is what's been happening since Monday, or to send um, ground troops, tanks, into Gaza, which I think would be a horrible, horrible decision. And I think, and I want to be very cautious, that the, uh, the terrible riots in the streets of Israel are going to impact Netanyahu and, and his decision. Not, I hope, not to send troops into Gaza because he really needs to focus on the streets of Israel at the moment. If you just joined us, we're talking with Amos Giora. He's a professor of law at the University of Utah. Splits his time between uh, Israel and uh, Utah. And uh, currently he is uh, at his home just outside of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, he's giving us a live report of the situation there, the, this uh, escalating violence uh, in that area. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have much more, and you can get your question or comment to us by uh, email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, our guest for the hour, is Amos Giora. Uh, he is a professor of law at uh, University of Utah. And uh, he is uh, at his home just outside Jerusalem right now. He splits his time between Israel and uh, Utah. He served for 19 years in the Israeli Defense Forces uh, as lieutenant colonel. He's retired uh, from that now. He held several senior command positions, including legal advisor to the Gaza Strip and commander of the IDF School of Military Law. Um, And so we have Professor Giora with us uh, for the hour uh, of course, the situation, well, let me ask you, Professor Giora, the situation just seems to be escalating, no, no end in sight. Is that the feeling you have? Which situation, the Gaza situation uh, or the domestic situation? Uh, Let's begin with the Gaza situation. I think, I think that um, no end in sight. I'm, I'm hesitating because... You know, it's, at some point, both sides have to ask themselves, like, what the hell are we doing? Um, where are we going with this? And I would like to think, I understand that the, that President Biden is sending an envoy, has sent an envoy. 
we'll send an envoy. The only role that the Americans can play here is to pick up a phone and to call the Saudis, the Qataris, the Egyptians, and maybe the Turks. In parentheses, I know that Turkey is irritated, not America, because of recognition of the Armenian genocide. And to have either three or four of those countries play the role of indirect mediator, because Israel and Hamas don't speak directly, and America doesn't speak to Hamas, and it's fine that Biden and Netanyahu speak, even though they don't really have a relationship. Uh, Biden needs to um, implore three or four of those countries to play the role of, of active uh, indirect mediators. Um, both sides, you know, we have an expression in Hebrew that you need the, the, the victory picture. Um, at the moment, uh, Netanyahu does not have a victory picture at all. Uh, Hamas has a victory picture, or victory pictures, I think. Um, and the best example I can give you that is that the Israeli airport, the main, the main international airport in, outside Tel Aviv is closed, and all foreign airlines have canceled all flights in and out of Israel. That, for Hamas, in the context of a narrative, is a very significant achievement. Netanyahu does not have that picture. Um, with respect to the the, the, the riots on the, in the streets of Israel, as I told you, there's a, there are demonstrations, not demonstrations, rallies, peace rallies, or coexistence rallies, happening throughout Israel, literally as you and I are speaking. My, my family is attending one of those. Um, I really genuinely believe that addressing that issue is much harder and much more challenging than addressing the, the Gaza um, rocket Israeli response issue. Uh, it- Expand a little bit on that. That and yeah, very, very difficult, and especially given the kind of the stalemated political position, uh, right? I guess that would play into this, and the fact that violence tends to be good violence. Uh, how how can this be? One hundred percent right. Uh, how so how, how can you move forward? Watch it on social media yesterday and today. Um, the Jewish extremists who came to the mixed towns yesterday, they were very organized. And it was, um, people who follow us on social media were saying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. The, the Israeli police, um, of whom I am very, very critical, were, and I'll tell you in a second why I'm very, very critical, um, were very slow to respond and did not respond aggressively with respect to the Jewish extremists uh, the way they should have. Why am I critical of the Israeli police? For the last, I think it's 45 to 50 weeks, every Saturday night, there are there's a demonstration rally outside the Prime Minister's house in Jerusalem. And the street where the Prime Minister lives is called Balfour, so the demonstrations are called the Balfour demonstrations. Um, we go every Saturday, um, and the Israeli police have played, have had a very, very heavy hand with respect to us who go demonstrate. That heavy hand against those of us who demonstrate against the prime minister was not under any circumstance or any condition um, in play yesterday with respect. 
effect to how the police treated right-wing Jewish extremists, more than that. The term of art that's used here is that the right-wing shows that the left constantly are um, traitors and haters of Israel. The word traitor here has historical significance because that's the term that was used consistently and loudly against Prime Minister Rabin leading up to his assassination in November of 1995. One of the main insiders against Rabin in 1995 was Netanyahu it was when he was in the opposition. So when I told you a few minutes ago that I point his accuse, accusatory finger at Netanyahu, it is not by chance. Uh, it is not something I'm saying impulsively. I've written about this. He is the master of incitement, and I absolutely blame him for much of what's happening on the street in the context of fomenting violence by his incitement against Israeli Arabs. I remind you and the viewers in the 2015 election, on the day of the election, Netanyahu had a, a robocall to his supporters, and the phrase that he used on the country of the people was, the Arabs are voting in droves. And while he kind of half stepped back when President Obama and others heavily criticized him for that, the truth is, that's incitement. It's also racism. And that has stayed in the air for the last six years. And in many ways, I guess you could say to me, why, Amos, why are you surprised about the, the violence of the past two, three days in Israeli street? And perhaps the more I talk and the more I think about it, maybe in some ways I really shouldn't be surprised, which also means, do I see a way to, to work our way back from this at the moment? I'm hard-pressed at the moment. I want to uh, draw back from the from the context, which is all which is very very useful, and uh, return again, just uh, albeit briefly, to uh, maybe the the current situation. So, uh, rockets still coming in from from Gaza and Israel, and I think the Israel Defense Forces still sending uh, rockets into into Gaza. I read that uh, you know yeah, high rise or two I, were I leveled. Think, I yeah right. I as a matter of fact, I. I'm going to, literally in real time, going to the Israeli press. Uh, there were firing, there was, there again, for the first time, you know, I never want to say first time ever, but first time that I can recall, there was um, a um, loaded drone that um, had been fired from Gaza on its way to southern Israel, um, which would have, if it would have landed, evidently would have had some very significant um, impact. And it was fortunately, um, um, I don't know if you destroy a drone, um, um, but it was shot down. Um, and that's very fortunate. Um, but yes, the answer is the rocket firing is continuing. And there was also rocket firing into Tel Aviv uh, earlier this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the Israel Defense Forces say they they are trying their very best to, to make these uh, you know uh, rocket attacks very very targeted, uh, but you know many folks uh, dead, civilians in in Gaza. What's uh, what's the feeling there in in around Jerusalem in in Israel uh, about that? So. There's a, you're right. I mean, the effort on the, uh, made by uh, attacks from the air are you know, what in America we call drone attacks, what we in Israel call targeted killing, which 
I was involved in um, while serving in the IDF in terms of targeting and decision-making. Um, the idea is to hit specific targets and to avoid collateral damage, i.e. the killing of innocent people. The reality is, and the tragedy of is, is as much as you try to be pinpoint, um, civilian deaths are inevitable, tragically. It seems to me that the effort is being made, as you know, we were sitting in the evening here, uh, to keep up that pressure um, of air attacks, drone attacks. Then I immediately add in the next sentence that if the rocket barrage continues, and if it exacts a toll, i.e. the killing of Israelis, then that would arguably push Netanyahu into ground troops, yes, ground troops, no. I need to add that as vociferous and a critic as I am of Netanyahu, at the end of the day, on these kinds of issues, is actually a very hesitant, um, what some people would say cautious, other people would say scared, to commit ground forces. And you know, whether it's hesitant, cautious, or scared, you can choose whichever adjective you want. Um, I would like to think that even he understands for all of his rhetoric and all of the incessant mantras of this time will show them, and this time will really show them, but this time will really, really, really show them, that at the end of the day he'll stick with, with the use of air power, which also buys time, goes back to your previous question, in terms of the U.S., which buys time for Biden's envoy and or Biden or whomever um, to bring in those um, indirect mediators, which I think is the only way to enable Hamas and Israel to climb down from the tree um, until the next time. Uh, I just wanted to quote Representative Chris Stewart, a Republican from Utah, a congressman. Uh, this goes to the politics here in the U.S. Um, he, his tweet, uh, recent tweet, says uh, that Biden, quoting uh, Congressman Stewart now, Biden can't give in to the radical lefts, talking about the radical left in the U.S., false equivalency between Israel and Hamas. Israel has every right to defend themselves in the face of terrorist attacks. Social justice ideology can't be prioritized over America's top ally in the Middle East. So that's, that's a little taste of politics in the United States, which I guess uh, President Biden ha- has to negotiate here. Yeah, so I'm not really sure what Chris is, is trying to say there, with all due respect. Um, obviously, Israel has the right to defend itself. Biden knows Israel has the right to defend itself. Um, that strikes me as a tweet for the sake of a tweet. Um, doesn't say anything. Um, and I don't really understand what, what um, um, Congressman Stewart is saying there at all. Uh, so to, just, no to, just to reiterate, uh, you feel that uh, Netanyahu should not send in ground forces. You, you feel that would be a big mistake. Uh, tell us again why. It would be, uh, be horrible. Horrible, unmitigated disaster to send in ground troops. Um, we've been through this before. It is a lose-lose. There's nothing to be gained um, from sending in ground troops, tanks, artillery, whatever. I mean, yeah, you know, ground troops, um, special forces, anybody else into Gaza. It's um, whatever the word quagmire means. Quagmire means it's quagmire. Um, it's inevit- inevitable that there will be loss- heavy losses on both sides, and no strategic gain whatsoever. I think it would be the height of of horrible irresponsibility by Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. And my instinct is that the IDF has no interest in 
in going into Gaza at all, other than the air attacks. Yeah. We made reference. That's my sense. Yes, we made reference to 2014. Uh, the last time we had a really big spike in in violence. Uh, you know, some have called what happened then. I don't know what your characterization is. Uh, essentially, war for a couple of months, right? Is that is that your view? Of what happened in 2014? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not war because you know Gaza is not a state, and war is between states. But. Um, we even have an expression here in Hebrew, which I'll translate to you for English, into English, which is armed conflict short of war. You're going to ask me, what does that mean? I'll tell you, I don't know, but it's the term we use here. Um, but, you know, near war, how's that? Um, I, I think that as much as that would serve Netanyahu's political interests, I think it would be... Uh, an unmitigated disaster. There's no benefit to it. Because, look, we, 2014, you're right, we really showed them. I'm being sarcastic. Right? We really showed them. Um, and here we are in 2021. And by the way, I don't mean to pick on, on, on Congressman Stewart, who I've, you know, I've met with Chris. Um, those kinds of, 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 of mantras, in the same way that I'm extremely critical of, of Israelis who go on TV and spout those mantras, there's no benefit to that. It, it really... Is, is really meaningless, if not useless. I mean that. What is the worst-case scenario now, do you think? And, and are, we, are we nearer that than, than the best-case scenario? Worst-case scenario is plural. Um, obviously, you know, heavy rocket firing into Israel and, and lots of Israelis killed, that'd be bad. There was a, um, on Tuesday night, there was a direct hit on a bus that fortunately that the people in the bus were able to um, get off the bus. They were all trained here, right? Um, were able to get, because they heard the early warning, they were able to get out of the bus. Um, seven people were injured, but if not for the early warning system, it would have been horrific. I mean, you can see the pictures of the bus on, 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 um, on the Internet. It would have been horrific. Um, last night, I think a five- or six-year-old child was killed and his mother was seriously wounded. A, a significant number of civilian injuries, deaths in Israel, from an Israeli perspective, would be worst case. I think, um, and I have no doubt from the perspective of, of, of Gazans, you know, the, the, the killing and the deaths of, of innocent Gazans is terrible. I, I think that's very clear to all of us, to most of us. Worst-case scenario in terms of the streets of Israel is um, continued riots and, and the continued, what I told you, what are referred to as lynchings here and the killing of, of, of Jews and or of Arabs in the streets of Israel. That, for me, that's the worst-case scenario, more than Israelis being killed by rocket fire. Not to minimize the deaths from rocket fire, but in terms of your very thoughtful question about worst-case scenario, that if Israelis were to kill Arabs and Arabs were to kill Israelis in the streets of Israel, that for me is, is far, far, far more distressing than um, people being injured and or killed um, by rocket fire. You can work your way around the rocket fire. We all know how that can, how it will end, whether today, tomorrow, or no month, whatever. Uh, killing... Citizen A killing citizen B because of their ethnicity, that, for me, 
is far more dangerous to democracy than getting hit and or killed by rocket fire. Let's uh, take another brief break. We're talking with Amos Giori, his professor of law at University of Utah. He splits his time between Utah and uh, his home just outside of uh, Jerusalem. That's where he is right now. And he's giving us the view from Israel right now during this escalation of violence, uh, which seems to just be getting worse uh, here. We're talking about this, uh, and we'll continue the discussion following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment uh, with Amos Giora. Uh, He is professor of law at University of Utah and right now is at his home just outside of Jerusalem. We're getting the... uh, He's painting the scene here from Israel during this uh, latest spike in violence. Uh, Amos Giora served for 19 years in the Israel Defense Forces as lieutenant colonel and held several senior command positions, including legal advisor to the Gaza Strip and commander of the IDF School of Military uh, Law, and is speaking to us uh, from uh, just outside uh, uh, Jerusalem. And we're grateful for the perspective. Um, so, uh, Professor Giora, I'm wondering, that the, the riots there, are are those continuing? They generally start a little—it's only 7 in the evening here. They start later at night. Um, first social media— there's um, a call for the, the Jewish extremists to con- to continue. Um, there was on social media a call for um, a particular group that are the racist supporters of a racist soccer team to go to a TV studio about 15 minutes from our house with Molotov cocktails. Um, they're very open about this. This is one of the things that's uh, pick an adjective, um, whatever you want, bizarre, um, distressing. They're very open about their planned activities. Um, and I will hope that this time the Israeli police, like Rogelio, I have very little respect for because of the way they have um, differentiated in their treatment of left-wing supporters as compared to right-wing uh, supporters, that tonight, unlike last night, they will be far more prepared and if need be, will be as heavy-handed with with right-wing Jewish extremists as they have been with those of us who are from the political left. That remains to be seen. You know, it's seven o'clock here. You can call me back in three hours when it's when it's nighttime here, and then I'll have a much better idea of exactly what's unfolding in the streets, which is um, truly distressing. And you said uh, peace marches, peace protests are, are ongoing. I assume those are ongoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm just well, we're chatting because my family's there. There's a, uh, it's called a coexistence rally, a peace rally, like 10 minutes from our house. Um, and, you know, it's heartwarming to see, um, you know, people trying to... I, I never know what this expression means, that we all use it to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, I don't know if it can be put back in the bottle, but at least to um, concretely address Jews and Arabs together to try to um, quiet the forces and the voices, actually it's more than voices, the forces of hatred and extremism on both sides. Because that's what, that's what has happened the last two nights. It's not voices, it's, 
its actions, its, its actions of extremists who are violent. I mean, like, really violent. Um, but I want to emphasize, and I'm sure that those from the other side of the, you know, the political landscape would, would disagree with me, but um, there are a number of, of Israeli politicians, Jewish politicians, who are masters of incitement, and the same, when I said to your previous, said, we've been through this before, the assassination of Rabina in 95, um, the same language. I can't tell you how many times when I leave the, the Saturday night rallies, how many times I've been called a traitor, even though, you know, I served for 19 years in the IDF, uh, my kids served in the IDF, and I can't tell you how many times I've been called a traitor. And that's terrible. And that comes from somewhere. And it comes from Netanyahu, 100%. So that that's an indication of very extreme division, a uh, totally different view of, <laughs> of the world, right? How, how do you come back from that? How do you how do you bridge that gap, or, or at least uh, narrow it? So, if not for the craziness of the last week, the, I, because Netanyahu had been unable to form a government by law, the, the, the president of the state, the prime minister and a, and a president, the president had given the mandate to form a government to another politician. The plan was, and I think they were going to succeed, was to form a government, what is called a minority, you need 61 members of parliament to have a government. They would have formed a minority government of 58, but with four members of an Arab party as um, outside supporters. That was the plan. That, I am absolutely of the firm belief that that would have restored normalcy and sanity. I would like to think that somehow that's still possible, but the clock is ticking. Um, his name is Lapid, L-A-P-I-D. He holds the mandate. It was given to him last Wednesday or Thursday, or Tuesday, last Tuesday, Wednesday. He has 28 days, which is now 20 days, 19 days. Um, I really don't know, in a very complicated world of Israeli politics, how his 57 members from different political parties, it's four or five, maybe six parties that are part of this 57 seat coalition, which 58, would now reach out to the Arab party. And I don't know how the Arab party would feel to be the external support of this, of a what's called the change government. I really don't know if that's possible at the moment. That, for me, to your question, is the only way to walk back from where we are today. Because maintaining Netanyahu, whether in a transition government, because if Lapid can't form a government, then we'll have a fifth round of elections. Um, and in the interim, we'll stay with this transition provisional government, which is Netanyahu. Uh, there's no way that he has any interest in walking back. Hmm. Now, you said earlier in this conversation, just want to underline this, uh, the, the way to stop the, uh, you know, the, the, the rocket attacks and that that part of the violence um, is for the Biden administration perhaps to organize with other governments who might intercede. Is that, that the case? Yes. 
I think that's exactly, yes. The U.S. US doesn't play a role here. I mean, doesn't play a direct role. The U.S. doesn't have any uh, um, conversation or red line, red phone, red line um, to Hamas. Uh, The U.S., um, and and frankly, also Biden and Netanyahu don't really have, I think, a relationship as compared to whatever relationship Netanyahu purportedly had with Trump, which is have a long conversation about that one. Um, yes, I think the only role the U.S. can play is to convince uh, these other countries to um, pick up the phone and to engage with, with Israel and uh, Hamas, and then indirectly to bring Hamas and Israel together. That's generally how these things are resolved in 2014. Um, if I recall correctly, it was Egypt that was willing to play a role um, because both sides, I mean, both Israel and Hamas, have a relationship with Egypt and are willing to have Egypt play, um, not, not the peacemaker, but the indirect mediator. But, you know, there's maybe a different issue here. There's no adult in the building, frankly. Um, there's no one to, quote-unquote, call the children to dinner. Um, and that's also a problem. Which have about three. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that I think that as far as I can ascertain, the Biden administration has very little interest in, in any involvement in the Middle East. I think when they came to office, their priority or priorities were, I think, China and, and maybe Russia. I don't think the Middle East really interested them. And like other American administrations, they're going to be brought into this thing kicking and screaming. But I think that, frankly, the Biden administration has very little um, influence and or impact here at the moment. Mm. Um, so just uh, about three minutes left here, uh, and I want to you know pull up to 30,000 feet, get your very brief ideas. Uh, is there a solution to this, the overall Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace? It is, you know, could there be peace, permanent, lasting uh, peace? So I don't know if you know, but for five years officially and for, I think, ten years unofficially, I've been involved in um, efforts to resolve this conflict five years officially when I served in the IDF and then unofficially in various capacities and and meetings uh, wherever with whomever trying to put together some kind of a plan for decision makers. Is it possible? Yes. Does it require courageous decision makers? Yes. Is it implementable? Yes. Do we at the moment have the kind of, we being both sides, which I'll explain in a second, the kind of decision makers that are needed? No. One of the realities is that people like me who believe in a two-state solution, the establishment of the state of Palestine, and obviously the state of Israel, we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, that there's um, intellectual dishonesty in that phrase, because the chance of creating a state of Palestine would require unifying Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Um, the chance of that happening, um, I have hair like Bruce Willis, so the chance of that happening is the chance of me having long hair. And that's a real problem. And the Palestinians have said over the years that the first thing that needs to happen is they need to get their own house in order. And 
we can talk about the desire to resolve the conflict and establish a new state of Palestine, which I'm a huge supporter of. But that can't happen as long as Hamas and the West Bankers are literally at each other's throats. Because there's no president of the Palestinian Authority, whether it's the president of um, 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 Abbas or whoever comes after him, that is going to, I think, have any real chance of bringing Hamas under their umbrella. The same way that no Palestinian Authority is going to be under the umbrella of Hamas. Uh, you know, as we're fond of saying here, Hamas hates the Palestinian Authority only more than they hate us. And that's why when we talk about resolution, we have to be honest about this and say that the notion of a two-state solution, as much as we all use that, that mantra, and resolution is, first of all, it's complicated as complicated as it can be, but its complication is, is enhanced by the fact that the Palestinian entity is divided into two distinct parts, not only physically, because the West Bank and the Gaza are not um, adjacent, but not only are they um, not adjacent physically, they're absolutely not adjacent existentially, politically, culturally. Which means that at the moment is this resolvable. A friend of mine who's a, a journalist here in Israel uses an expression which I think is pretty accurate. This is, for now, for now, a permanent low-grade fever. And I think that's probably right. And because it's a permanent low-grade fever, there are spikes. And at the moment, we're in the middle of a spike. What we didn't take into consideration was the terrible violence on the streets of Israel. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. We're out of time, uh, but uh, very much appreciate uh, Amos Gura for uh, joining us. He has uh, been talking to us from his uh, home just outside of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, he splits his time between uh, Israel and uh, Utah. He's a professor of law at University of Utah. Professor Giora, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. Truly my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, on Thursdays, we go out with the latest edition of Leo T and Skywatcher. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here. Look up to the sky in early twilight. Spot the beautiful crescent moon in the west-northwest. To the left and up a bit is shrinking orange Mars. About the same distance lower right of the moon is Mercury, and farther to the moon's left is Betelgeuse, the last bright star of Orion to depart as spring advances. And let's take the Skywatcher spaceship way out to rendezvous with JPL and NASA spacecraft called OSIRIS-REx. Remember us talking about that? OSIRIS-REx, a great name for a spaceship and a dinosaur probably. OSIRIS-REx launched in 2016 and has been on a long journey that took it out to a briquette-looking space rock called Bennu. OSIRIS orbited and then landed and scooped up samples of the asteroid and continued to orbit and study from above. Utah State University Space Dynamics Lab designed the focal point arrays including three cameras and detectors. These helped the craft to navigate, view in high resolution, and map Bennu. Congratulations! And now OSIRIS-REx has fired its thrusters and is heading back to Earth. It's a long journey home. It'll cover about 1.4 billion miles. OSIRIS-REx must circle the sun twice to get from Bennu to Earth. Wow. When it arrives in 2023, our cosmic traveler will drop off the samples, ironically, in the Utah desert of all places, and then probably head out for another near-Earth asteroid expedition. Check out the Skywatcher Leo T Facebook page for a picture of Bennu and all sources for this segment. As many cultures, one sky, the Hadza people of Eastern Africa, 
and Tanzania have lived in Tanzania longer than any group has lived anywhere. They were here when the Egyptians built the pyramids. They had already been on the same stretch of land for 50,000 years, living off the land. To the hots of fire forged their predecessors into the people they are now, using fire for, of course, warmth, roasting roots and tubers, and roasting meat from their hunts. In celebration, the Hadza teach the children in the evening sounds to be aware of, animal sounds. The fire inspires singing and dancing around the fire. When they look to the night sky, of course they see mysterious and mythical figures. You have to wonder what the night sky looked like to them thousands of years ago. Swirly Corona Borealis, the Orion Nebula, they're still here for us to travel back in time and join the Hadza, the Incas, and the Fremont in wonder and unity. Novas, comets, and shooting stars that lit up their world still light up ours. For the Hadza, mythological figures are believed to take part in arranging the world. Ishoko is a solar figure. Hain is a lunar figure. May the Hadza continue to thrive in eastern Africa near the Rift Valley and Serengeti Plateau. Stay tuned for more on the Hadza star myths, and next week we'll take a look at UFOs. So look up, look around, get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom.